0: Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise, with lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Welcome to the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. My name is Mike Huberty. I'm the owner of American Ghost Walks Haunted History Tours across the Midwest and beyond. I'm hanging out with...
1: Jeff Fennop of Badgerland Legends, where I bring you a legend a day from the Badger State.
0: In southwestern Wisconsin, there's an area roughly 160 miles long and 70 miles wide with unique features. Its rugged terrain differs from the rest of the state. The last of the Pleistocene glaciers did not trample through this area, and the glacial deposits of rock, clay, sand, and silt, called drift, are missing. Singularly unrefined, it endured in its hilly, primitive form, untouched by the shaping hands of those cold giants. As the glacial herd inched around the driftless region, it became an island surrounded by a sea of receding ice. There, plant spores and pollen, frozen for tens of thousands of years, regained their ability to grow. Moss fastened to the back of rocks, birds and other creatures carried in seeds which sprouted, rooted, and prospered. Hard woods and evergreens rose into the sky with warmth-loving tree tribes settling on southern hillsides and cold-loving tribes on northern slopes. Rivers and streams, draining fields for the glaciers and migratory paths for animals, poured into the Mississippi River Valley. The waters rushed thick with salmon, red trout, and pike, which in turn attracted osprey, heron, otter, mink, and others who lived by fishing. In time, larger animals moved in, including bear, woolly mammoth, giant sloth, saber-toothed tiger, mountain lion, and a 200-pound species of beaver. With the wildlife came humans, and for thousands of years, people about whom there can now only be speculation conducted civilization from those ancient woods. The summer camp of the Singing People was once located in the Driftless. The first Europeans to arrive were trappers, hunters, and berry pickers, men who lived much as the people who were already there, often mating and living with them. In time, trading posts sprung up along the larger rivers, attracting more trappers and hunters rafts piled high with furs floated downstream until the supply of cash animals was nearly exhausted then a larger wave of immigrants came displacing the frequently moving trappers hunters and foragers trading posts gave way to forts farms and villages the new arrivals almost without exception came in search of homesteads families as numerous as church mice rode in wagons on wheels with wooden spokes pulled by oxen and mules dreaming of property When they arrived, they climbed out of their wagons, sharpened their axes, and moved into the driftless to harvest a ripe and waiting crop, timber. Logging roads and lumber mills invaded the hills, and within a single generation, the driftless forests, like the rest of Wisconsin's virgin oak, pine, and maple, were cut, floated downstream, and made into railroad ties and charcoal. After the settlers cut down the trees and dug up all the lead and gold they could find, many abandoned the driftless in search of flatter, richer farming. Those who remained were generally the more stubborn agriculturists, eking a living from small farms perched on the sides of eroded hills. Like the Badger State totem that burrows in the ground for both residence and defense, they refused to leave. For better or worse, their roots ran deep. That's from the 2010 book Driftless by David Rhodes. And I thought that was a good introduction to the area we'll be talking about today, the driftless region of Wisconsin and its most famous paranormal resident, the Ridgeway Phantom.
1: I like that introduction, and it really paints a picture because when most people think of Wisconsin, they think of rolling hills and dairy farms and, you know, pastoral. But to get down into the driftless region, you really get to experience kind of the craggy outcroppings and some of the more diverse landscape that Wisconsin has to offer.
0: Yeah, it's definitely different. You know, do you remember the first time you heard about the Ridgeway Phantom?
1: It was actually in a book that my mom brought home from the library when I was about eight or nine. And it was a book that really captivated my imagination and kind of the romance of Wisconsin and storytelling. And that was Wisconsin Lore by Garden Soren. the uh, ah. main chapter in that book was about the Ridgway Phantom and other ghost stories.
0: And so you had a fairly early introduction to the Ridgway Phantom. Oh, that, that's great. That's great. I, you know, I didn't hear about it till when I was in college. And then somebody's like, oh, yeah, there's a ghost out there in Ridgway. And I'm like, what?
1: Where is Ridgway?
0: Right. I, at the time, right, I'd never even heard of Ridgway before. I'd heard of Platteville. You know, I'd heard of areas in Iowa County and stuff like that. But I just, I'd never. Yeah,
1: Dodgeville on the way to Platteville. Yeah. But yeah, Ridgeway. Just kind of a dried-up town at this point.
0: Little place, and this is how the Ridgeway Village website describes its history. Southwestern Wisconsin was rapidly populated between 1832 and 1845 with the development of lead mines. Immigrant miners, particularly Cornish, Welsh, Irish, and German, came at the rate of 10,000 a year to dig their fortunes from the ground and live in this new land. Ox teams were the main source of transportation, and the trip to Galena, Illinois required five days. Now you can get there in like, you know, 40 minutes <laughs> from Redway or whatever. Along this wilderness, hotels, post office, and groceries, saloon and store sprang up every three or four miles where teams could be fed and watered and travelers could rest. The area was home to some undesirable characters, always alert for easy money, Mines dotted the countryside and the nights were spent in the saloons with gambling and drinking. Knifings, fights, and shootings were a daily occurrence. Legal justice was slow and whipping was the main punishment. So, Sounds a
1: lot like the Wild West.
0: Right. And it was like the
1: Wild West. It was the Northwest Territory.
0: Yeah. And, and so this is before Wisconsin is a state. And, you you know, before there was a gold rush, there was a lead rush. And this is from Why is Wisconsin the Badger State? And do actual badgers live here? That was an article by Alexa Irado in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Lead was extremely valuable at the time. It was mostly used for ammunition, but also pipes, toys, and paint, which it's not used for paint anymore, (laughs) obviously. Otherwise, we'd be talking funny. It was more promising than fur trading or farming. And so the lead rush commenced. But these miners were a bit unusual. Perhaps lacking the time and resources to build them, the miners didn't live in traditional forms of shelter like houses. Instead, they lived in dens or caves dug into hillsides. This is how Daniel Parkinson, uh, he's a lead miner in a town called New Diggings Mm -hmm. in 1827, describes such dwellings for the second volume of Wisconsin Historical Collections published in 1856. The second volume might be my favorite volume of Wisconsin Historical Collections. Mine too. Quote, a large hole or excavation being made in the side of a hill or bluff, the top being covered over with poles, grass, and sod, Parkinson said. A level way from the edge of the hole at the bottom was dug out some 10 or 12 feet, forming a sheltered entrance. Subsequently, their burrowing earned the miners the nickname badgers, after the animal that uses its enormous claws for digging. And so that's how it's not based on the fact that badgers are all over Wisconsin or whatever. I guess it's more
1: the fact that these miners came here looking for work. They probably didn't have much and they didn't couldn't afford housing, so they just burrowed in the side of the hills and called it good enough while they they worked, they retired to their dens, quote unquote. Right. And developed the nickname of the badgers.
0: Well, and if we talk about the Cornish and the Welsh immigrants who were coming in, they said Cornish, Welsh and German coming in at 10,000 per year, which is a ton of people coming in when you're talking about the 1830s. I mean, the Welsh and the Cornish, they were like mining pros. That was their specialty. And in fact, uh, they had their own like, legend about the mine. The and, Tommyknockers. Yeah, which, I mean, Stephen King obviously wrote a famous book based on that idea. But this is from Legends of America by Kathy Weiser Alexander. These impish, gnome-like men are the Cornish equivalent of Irish leprechauns and English brownies. Germans called them Berggeister or Bergmanland meaning mountain ghosts or little miners. The Cornish believed these wee little men were the souls of the Jews who crucified Christ and were sent by the Romans to work as slaves in the tin mines. This belief was so strong that the knockers were allegedly never heard on Saturdays nor at times of Jewish festivals. So the Tommyknockers kept the Sabbath. A little bit of anti-Semitic Cornish legends there.
1: At least they let them take off the high holidays.
0: I was going to say, right? They didn't work on Rosh Hashanah. They're about two feet tall and often described as greenish in color. They look like men and are most often spied wearing a traditional miner's outfit. Living beneath the ground, they have been known to have committed both good and bad deeds through the century, often playing practical jokes and committing random acts of mischief, such as stealing unattended tools and food. The name knockers is pronounced knackers. And I guess if you're saying it in an accent, told me knackers kind of, kind of thing, comes from the knocking on the mine walls that happens just before a cave-in. Caused by the creaking of earth and timbers, some thought that these sounds of hammering were malevolent, indicating certain death or injury. Others saw the knocking as well, meaning warnings that the miners were in a life-threatening collapse and it was coming soon. Yet others believed that the knocking sounds would lead them to a rich ore body or signs of good luck. These highly animated characters were also known to perform many of the mining duties working right alongside the men, being blamed for pranks. It was often credited with saving the lives of miners. If a hammer was missing, it was the Tommyknackers who had taken it. But if a miner escaped a collapse, the Tommyknackers were given credit. Later, that legend evolved into the idea that the knockings were caused by dead miners who were kind enough to give warnings of danger to the living. In praise of these kind gestures, the miners would leave food and other items to secure their good graces and protection. So they're basically the fairies of the mines. And so these are the people who are coming over in the 1830s during the lead rush because they're already miners back home and they see the new world as a chance to remake themselves, but also use the skills they've already learned. And so they just come over in droves and they bring their legends with them. And, well, and some of those legends obviously are going to be supernatural, you know, things like the Tommyknockers. But it's also things like ghosts and other creatures. Now, there's the Military Ridge Road that basically goes through much of the state from, like, the Fox Valley all the way down to, like, the... Like,
1: Prairie du Chien, I believe it was... Fort Howard in Green Bay to Fort Crawford in Prairie du Chien,
0: and so you know you can still kind of go on the Military Ridge Trail or whatever. There's a hiking trail and a running and biking.
1: It's a popular bicycle trail, definitely between Madison and Dodgeville, right?
0: And when we talk about that area between Madison and Dodgeville, it was along the Military Ridge Road that people had seen this Ridgeway Phantom. Now, what kind of experiences are they having? when they see this ghost. Okay, this comes from Charles E. Brown, and obviously Charles E. Brown is everybody's paranormal Wisconsin favorite. He's the
1: patron saint of uh, Badgerland legends for sure.
0: (laughs) Yes. And so, I mean, Charles E. Brown collected all of the folklore from Indian folklore to folklore of the recent immigrants and put it all together in the 1930s. He also was like one of the first guys in the Wisconsin Historical Society, I think.
1: Yeah, he was uh, one of the first presidents. He was also involved in the Archaeological Society. And And he was a folklorist, archaeologist. The first um, one who cared about saving
0: the mounds. Yes,
1: he was definitely interested in preserving the mounds and also the culture of Wisconsin.
0: Right, so Charles E. Brown. From everything from
1: Native American tales to some of the folk tales that came over that you were referring to from, you know, the Welsh, Cornish, English, Irish.
0: Right. So he's a saint to us. So eventually something horrible comes out about Charles E. Brown. I'm going to be broken hearted. But until then, I love him. So this is the story of the town ghost. There is a small town only a few miles west of the capital city of our state that possesses a ghost all of its own. This locality was originally settled by good Cornish folk who came to this locality to work in the early lead mines of the vicinity. Now, many of these settlers and some of their descendants have at some time or other had experiences which they have told of the ghost or apparition which haunts or formerly haunted this locality. This phantom, differing from others of his kind in this respect, was as likely to be abroad and working mischief in the daytime as well as at night. He was a very sprightly spirit and the cause of no end of trouble and grief to the settlers, who never relished his various escapades. One of his favorite tricks was to suddenly appear from a roadside thicket and leap on the tongue of a buggy or wagon which was traveling over a country road. His presence on the pole nearly always maddened the horses and so started a runaway which often resulted in a smash-up. Sometimes the ghost would leap into the back of a wagon, throw the unsuspecting driver from his seat, assume the reins, and whip and lash the frightened horses into a mad gallop. Such teams, after running themselves nearly to death, returned home without a driver. On one such occasion, when a thunderstorm was rapidly coming up behind a wagon, the team of horses ran so very fast that the rain in falling wetted only the back of the wagon and never reached the driver or team during a drive of a mile or more to the village. The rain was halted at the rear by the presence of the ghost in the wagon box. Among other favorite pranks of this ghost was the removal of one or two wheels from a wagon, the resulting in wagons either suddenly crashing to earth or of reaching its destination in two or three wheels. Milking cows dry as they stood in the field or barn of their owners was not an infrequent happening for which this phantom was responsible. He would leap on the back of one of a herd of cows or group of horses in a pasture and from its back drive the others in a mad race about the field. There was in this settlement a Doty Cornishman, the father of a famous wrestler, not the crusher, and himself a wrestler of more than local repute, who proclaimed that if he himself ever met the ghost, that he would engage in a wrestling match with him and, quote, put him down, unquote. One evening, he set out with the purpose of meeting the ghost, if possible, and of engaging in such a trial of strength. The next day, this mighty man was found lying dead, his neck broken in a field beyond a stone fence. He had met the phantom, and it had thrown him over the stone wall. The road over which the two had fiercely struggled was torn up for yards in several directions. It seems the coming of the automobile has quieted the activities of this troublesome ghost, but we are assured by some people that he is not yet inactive in this rural neighborhood. And so this is, I mean, the first stories of the Ridgeway Phantom aren't just like some kind of, I mean, it, it's more like a, like a highwayman or something like, a, you know, he's a, a character that is screwing with people. Yeah, kind of a trickster. You know, that's interesting. So it's, it's like, it's more a ghost in the sense of a ghost, like you can't catch him. Instead of saying it's obviously a supernatural figure, if he can stop the rain, that, all, that sounds poltergeist to me.
1: And they refer to him as the phantom, not necessarily the ghost. Right. In the early accounts anyway.
0: Yeah. And so it's just this crazy character who's pulling all these pranks and th- somebody to blame these pranks on. Now, you were talking about Garden and Sorden's book, Wisconsin Lore, published in 1962, and here's how they describe the activity that was happening. So this is what you read when you were a little boy, and it sparked your imagination, Jeff. For sure. Just west of Ridgeway and Highway 18, formerly known as the Ridge Road, is the area which old-timers called, quote, the Haunted Grove, unquote. This is now peaceful open farming country, but as late as 50 years ago, anyone who had to travel through this area did so only in broad daylight. If they were forced to travel through the haunted grove at night, they whipped up their horses and they spread through with their eyes straight ahead and their ears closed to all sounds. It seems that in the earlier days, someone, nobody knows who, encountered a ghost in this timbered area. The haunt had appeared driving a great team of black horses hitched to a black rig. This phantom carriage rushed straight at the traveler and passed over him, leaving him senseless in the trail. Later stories recounted a strange, flitting, white critter which dashed among and beside horseback riders as they were passing through the grove. Some of the riders also said they heard a wailing sound at night in the woods near the roadside. Natives in the Ridgeway region still talk about this haunted grove. In fact, it's unlikely that the ghost will ever quit the imaginations of the Ridgeway people. In 1910 at least, Pat Burns one night put the matter of the ghost to a waggish test. Driving north from the ridge with a man named Smith, Pat clucked to his team and suddenly said aloud, come on, get up higher on the seat. You don't have to ride on one of these eveners. Who are you talking to, Pat? Smith said, turning white. Why, that man's sitting down there on the double tress, Pat said. Don't you see him riding backwards and looking at us? Smith looked but saw nothing, nothing at all. Meanwhile, Pat had edged along the seat as though making room for another companion. He settled himself and remarked comfortably, there, friend, that's better. You'll be easier up here on the seat with us. Smith, according to Pat, departed rapidly and didn't budge from the local tavern for several weeks. So that's just, I mean, that's just more mischief. That's messing with people. I mean, obviously, the wrestler or whatever, he... Broke his neck. (laughs) Right, he broke the guy's neck. But the Phantom sounds more like a mischievous character than any kind of, you know... Straight up killer. Right now, that's what he sounds like. 22 years later, Robert Garb would write a story in the Capital Times in February 4th. And he would continue some stories about uh, the Ridgway fandom. One day at dusk, a Welshman was trudging along the road west of what is now the town of Ridgeway. It was the 1840s. The country was still pretty wild, sometimes fearsome. As the Welshman moved along, he began to feel like he was being followed. One quick look and he was convinced the Ridgway ghost was after him. "'Frightened, he broke into a dog-trot. "'The ghost did the same. "'The Welshman became terrified and began to run faster and faster. "'He ran so hard, he soon ran out of breath. "'Seeing a log beside the road, he sat down to rest, "'thinking maybe he'd left the ghost behind. "'Not at all. "'The ghost suddenly appeared and sat down on the other end of the log. "'It was one of the few times the ghost was known to speak. "'He said, "'That was good running you were doing, friend.' "'Voice shaking, the Welshman replied, "'Yes, I suppose so, but not good enough.' As soon as I catch my breath, I'm going to be doing some more, lots faster this time. The ghost shrugged and said, suit yourself, me. I'm just going to sit here a while and maybe somebody easier to bother will come along. So, you know, these are these charming stories of the Ridgeway Phantom. Like, you know, they're just things like a Welsh guy is going to say in the bar. Sure. And that's kind of what it sounds like. Like, these are bar stories. Oh, no. Did you hear what happened? The farmer Jones and his wagon, the wheels came off. You know who did that? The Phantom.
1: There's the Phantom Ridgeway, yeah. <laughs>
0: right, yeah. And so the Phantom's kind of used in some of these old stories in Wisconsin lore as, a, as just somebody to pass the time talk about, tell jokes about. But, you know, some people really believed in it. This is the Capitol Times 1973. Some nights, in some places, strange things
1: happen. Did this appear around Halloween?
0: Yes, Halloween 1973. And this should be the name of our podcast, Jeff. Some nights, in some places, strange things happen. Uh, And they're talking about different stories in the Madison area. The most famous is the Ridgeway Ghost, which became a serious part of many people's lives. There was a time when just about anybody in the Ridgeway vicinity had either seen or been very near the Ridgeway Ghost. An eerie green light signifying its presence floated across back porches or crossed the road just down from the house or drifted slowly over the next knoll during generations of Ridgeway's darkest nights. Mothers used to intimidate their children toward better behavior with talk about the Ridgeway ghost. He may come this way tonight if you don't behave. In some neighborhoods, everybody, including adults, had firm policies to get all chores done before dark, get into the house and stay there to be out of the way of the Ridgeway ghost. Strangers who passed through a Ridgeway at night customarily were followed at a distance by the Ridgeway ghost. The eerie green light trailed them hauntingly at a discreet distance until they reached a crossroads or some of the landmark. It was at such places that the ghost usually decided to end the trailing, but nobody ever knew which one the ghost might decide on, and travelers glanced nervously and anxiously over their shoulders after passing each crossing to see if the ghost would linger behind. While it was relief for one traveler, it was a continuation of the nightmare for another. The ghost usually waited for another traveler heading toward Ridgeway and followed him the same way. Sometimes encounters with the ghost were too close. There are stories of non-believers or unsuspecting visitors rounding corner or riding over a knoll and suddenly coming face to face with the glowing ghost. What they actually saw went with them to their graves. None ever talked about their experiences other than to say, I met the ghost. In most cases, the victim's hair turned snow white overnight. Now, that's some journalism, friends. Wow. (laughs) You know, that that could be just people trailing like weird if they're worried about their farms or they're worried about robbers or something like that. You know, the idea of the Green Lantern following travelers and stuff and keeping an eye on them. In the days before having a constabulary or a police force or anything, you got to watch out for your, somebody's going to steal your horses. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So to almost come up with a story is kind of ward off anybody kind of prowling is what you're kind of getting at.
0: Oh yeah. And they can follow somebody at a distance, the weird light in the distance that follows and it never ends up confronting them. You know, that's, you, you create a, and that's a whole Scooby-Doo thing is you you create a story of a, a ghost or a phantom to keep people away. And this way is more about protection rather than doing something nefarious, like whatever scooby-doo people do steal gold or something
1: yeah if it wasn't for you meddling kids
0: <laughs> right the ridgeway phantom would get his way capital times october 1986 in ridgeway things go bump in the night there's really a ghost no question about it said otto tesh 86 who claims he saw the ghost as a young man hundreds of people have seen the ghost and they couldn't all be wrong Tesh, who lives in the oldest house in town with his wife Nellie, was the barber here for 65 years and has heard hundreds of Ridgway ghost stories over those years. He started his profession when he was 17 and remembers the days when Ridgway was a prospering lead mining town filled with Cornish, Welsh, Irish, and German workers. He said on Saturday nights, the saloons would be brimming with miners out for a good time and talk about the ghost-filled air. I first heard about the ghost in 1914 when I was 14. It had first appeared long before my time, he said. I heard so many people talk about the ghost, I thought there must be something to it. Well, Tesh found out what that something was one night, when returning home from a date with his bride-to-be. It was a full moon, and I was walking home by the graveyard. I heard a noise, and here comes the biggest dog I ever saw, Tesh said. It snarled, and I reached down for a rock, and when I looked up, there wasn't any dog in sight. My old hound Jack was with me. And he went off down the road with his tail between his legs. Jack knew it was something there. The dog was at least four feet high and seven feet long. Speaking of Scooby-Doo, like four feet high and seven, that's Great Dane, you know. That's a, that's
1: a huge demon dog.
0: Right, that's a monster. That, that's Black Shock or whatever who's coming for you. Tesh, who often hunted raccoons at night with his dog, said, I was never afraid at night of anything. I never saw anything that scared me until that. I know it sounds like a fish story, but I saw it. It's an honest fact. There's something out there. You have to take my word. I have no reason to lie. So, Otto Tesh has seen the phantom.
1: You seen him? I've um, heard hundreds of tales.
0: <laughs> right. You know, but I think is interesting though about the Ridgeway Phantom and some of these stories is that he's a man sometimes. He's an animal other times. It's it's not that it's not necessarily the ghost of someone. It's something.
1: It's almost like a manifestation or a humanization of the other or a supernatural force.
0: Right. So, I mean, the Ridgeway Phantom could be any any kind of tricksterish supernatural force that's that's messing with people. And you know, he's invisible sometimes. He's just a floating green light. It's a dog. It's you know, it, it's a catch-all. Right. It's a carriage. Like you know, where if it's just a ghost of somebody who died, then how does he get his own carriage? Where does he get the ghost horses from? You know, if we, if we go into the idea of that a, a ghost is a disembodied human intelligence that doesn't have its physical form anymore, the Ridgeway Phantom does not seem to fit that. No. It also doesn't seem to fit a traditional haunting where it's just some, like, a recording that plays over and over again. It's not just like this haunted carriage that's going down the, you know, the old Military Ridge Road. It's it's an intelligent spirit. So it's an intelligent, non-corporeal, supernatural entity, not just like a human ghost that died and came back to mess with people. And so I started looking into like folklore of the area that might kind of you know, be related to this. And so in, you know, Native American or West African, or, you know, even in European and stuff, like the the oldest folklore and everything, there's this, like this trickster character. And I guess how we think of it, if we think of a trickster as somebody who's a prankster, these characters are kind of like that, but it's more of like anthropologists or guys like Joseph Campbell and stuff, kind of put these archetypes, on um, these native stories. And so in one of the Cree legends that's through the area, their trickster character who you know is almost like a trickster has a lot of very human desires and needs, like the trickster's hungry. The trickster wants to play a prank, and then can take different forms to mess with animals and things to try to get that. So one of the Cree heroes is we sack a check. And there's hundreds of endless stories about him. This is from the Canadian Museum of History. He is a joker, always playing jokes in his brothers and sisters, the animals, the plants, and the rocks. Now, stories about Sakachak always have a moral. They are called story cycles because they're all connected. Each story is from the collective memory of everyone who has told it and may change each time it's told. The narrator may add characters from another story or change the story slightly to make a certain point. I mean, it's a character of the oral tradition, of which I think it's, for a lot of us, it's kind of hard to understand the oral tradition. Yeah, you so even,
1: even through the interpretive lens of somebody like Charles Brown, who wrote a lot about American Indian legends, it's kind of hard to, because there's a disconnect between the languages. So a lot of them are Americanized or Anglicized to kind of fit that worldview, but still they're really hard to understand.
0: Right, and so that's what I'm saying. Like you get something like... Forcing the anthropologist, like forcing this trickster persona, you're saying like, oh, it's like a Nancy in the African tradition. We check. is the same kind of thing. Uh, we Sakachek has many powers, such as the ability to change shape and be anything he wants, and to speak the languages of the animals and plants. No one really knows what he looks like. He's believed to have left the earth and have headed north, but he returns sometimes to attend dances and other celebrations. The mischievous We is always getting into trouble in his attempts to prove his intelligence and strength. He's regarded as a pseudo-religious character in the Cree culture. His actions may seem evil or bad, according to Christian standards, but the Cree don't consider him or his actions evil. Stories about Wissakachak were told for entertainment and as a way of teaching people how not to do things.
1: So a cautionary tale.
0: Right, and so this is part of the mythology. And, you know, when we talk about, like, the language differences is one thing. It's also the, the difference between a written tradition and an oral tradition. So we think of reading I mean, our brains work differently. We can memorize less. I mean, you know, people in pre, you know, we talk about these pre-writing cultures or in, in oral cultures versus, you know, written history, they memorize huge tracts of things. And, and some of that is through, they use rhyming to help with that. Like Like a regular person would have, you know... Think about how many songs you got memorized. So, I mean, I'm a musician, so I have a lot of songs. But think about even the average person knows the words to 100 favorite songs or whatever. They could recite endlessly long stories and have the you know, memory capacity to do that. And so the way our brains, I think fundamentally, as, as people of a written language, work differently than brains of people who are raised only in an oral tradition.
1: And we outsourced that function or that ability or that muscle to... The pen and paper. Right, exactly and, and right. Ink, quill and pen or.
0: So, I mean, I, I find this endlessly fascinating. And, and of course, uh, check was then kind of, he turned into a, a character called Whiskey Jack that, you know, they, he was used in lumber raft pilots. So the rafts to get that lumber from Northern Wisconsin to the Mississippi River and then down to the rest of the country. Like there were thousands of lumber rafts on the Wisconsin River for a while before the railroads came and whiskey jack was the paul bunyan of lumber raft pilots in fact he was paul bunyan's like drinking buddy
1: so paul would cut the trees down right load them up and then whiskey jack would float them down the river
0: that's correct and whiskey jack would often get wasted on snake juice (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like whiskey, he was a problematic character. Like he getting fights and arguments and stuff with Paul Bunyan, and he's a larger than life character.
1: Or so he's kind of the antihero to Paul Bunyan's
0: right. And and he's also a character that people can make fun of. And he's you know he's used to tell morals and stories just like whiskey.
1: Don't be like whiskey, Jack.
0: So the European uh, settlers kind of they heard some of these Cree stories or another trickster figure in the Ojibwe, which is another culture that was in Wisconsin at the time. Nana Bush, Nabojo. Mm -hmm. is a a similar type of figure uh, a character used to tell some of these moral stories in that and they're also the the trickster figure they're they're doing things uh that sometimes mess with people sometimes mess with a fox and it's usually just to get a meal or (laughs) but they're important in the tradition in how stories are passed along whiskey jack becomes that too warnings of getting too drunk when you're trying to do a lumber raft or I mean, there's a story when he's jumping across the Wisconsin Dells and he's being chased by this 27 foot long blue racer snake. You know, it, cautionary tales that are you know are used to pass along a moral. And so I was like, okay, that's kind of the anthropological trickster. I'm like, I don't think the Ridgeway Phantom is quite like that, except maybe to teach you things like make sure you're you're tightening the nuts and bolts or whatever on your wagon wheels. Otherwise, the phantom will easily just undo them. Make sure you're feeding your horses. Otherwise, the phantom's going to feed them and steal them from you. Or like a mother talking to her child, make sure your chores are done before dark. Because if you're out there working, you never know what phantom's going to be behind you.
1: Yeah. And that was probably a more practical way to say there might be wolves. Maybe bears come out after dark that are more adept at seeing in the dark than the normal farm boy.
0: Right. But there already is a character in Celtic and Welsh and Cornish mythology that kind of fits the description of the phantom. And that is the Puka of Ireland, Wales, and also called the Bucca in Cornwall. This is from Ancient Pages and is written in 2017. Ancientpages.com, not actual Ancient Pages. <laughs> One of the famous creatures of Celtic folklore is the Puka. Ancient people's beliefs say that if you treat the puka with respect, this creature will give you helpful advice or an important prophecy. Commonly believed that the puka has the power of human speech, and used it to lead people away from harm. According to legend, a puka, which lives in the mountains and hills, is a quick and skillful shapeshifter, capable of assuming a great variety of terrifying or good-looking and trustworthy forms. But if the puka is offended, it can vandalize your house and destroy crops. When it usually comes at night and enjoys creating mischief and havoc. The psychological fear in people who believe in them can be compared to the devil in Christianity that creates fear in Christians. In this form, the puka wanders across vast areas of countryside, always at night, destroying gates and fences, damaging crops, and generally causing small disasters. Now, from The Fairy Mythology Illustrative of the Romance and Superstition of Various Countries by Thomas Knightley in 1880. That's quite the title. The Irish puka is plainly the English puck and would seem like it to denote an evil spirit. The notions respecting it are very vague. A boy in the mountains near Killarney told Mr. Croker that, quote, Old people used to say that the pukas were very numerous in the times long ago. They were wicked-minded, black-looking bad things that would come in the form of wild colts with chains hanging about them. They did great hurt to benighted travelers. Here we plainly have the English puck. But it is remarkable that the boy should speak of pukas in the plural number. In Leinster, it was always the, not a puka, that we heard named. When the blackberries began to decay and the seeds to appear, the children are told not to eat them any longer as the puka has dirtied on them. Or dropped a deuce on the berries.
1: I wasn't going to go there, but...
0: The, the celebrated fall of the Liffey near uh, Ballymore, Eustace, is named Pula Puka, or the puka's hole. Near Mayroom in the county of Cork are the ruins of a castle built on a rock named Carragapooka or the Pookas Rock. And there's an old castle not far from Dublin called Puck's Castle. And a townland in the county of Kildare is named Puckstown. The common expression, play the puck, is the same as play the deuce or play the devil. Now, if you guys are Shakespeare fans, puck is the mischievous forest sprite who causes a whole bunch of problems in A Midsummer Night's Dream. So if you say the Celtic puka, the English puck, that's kind of puck is a, a singular character, like Nanabush or Wisakachak, while the puka are more of a species of a phenomena rather than a single character. But it's interesting that the common expression, play the puck, is the same as play the devil. So...
1: I thought they were just talking about hockey.
0: Right, <laughs> right. Um, so uh, this is going back to ancient pages. The puka is not unique to Ireland. Ancient Cornish myths and legends tell about a small human-like creature, a kind of hobgoblin, known to ancient people as bucka, Similar to the puka that usually troubles people on the ground, the Cornish hobgoblin Bucca lives among fishermen and can help them or make various troubles to them when not appeased. The tradition says that the Bucca goblin also identified as the Black Spirit, had once much better reputation and was a Celtic sea god who declined to the status of a demon or hobgoblin. So, once again, though, here's how they describe it, the Black Spirit. And when the puka appears to the Irish, it's a black cult. And then there's the black carriage and horses of the Ridgeway Phantom. So it feels like the Ridgeway Phantom is always bringing over some of this lore from the home country. And also it's, you know, he's, he's a devil. He's mischievous. He's messing with people and he's causing problems. It feels more like it's some kind of fairy than a traditional ghost. You know, you were talking about earlier, a place called, is it the Hyde's Plantation? Hyde's Mill. Hyde's Mill. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because that talks a little bit about bringing over spirits from the old country.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. So Hyde's Mill, it's just north of Ridgeway. What's left of the plantation is an old wooden water wheel. That was originally built in 1850, but was a casualty of fire in 1870. It was rebuilt shortly after. So the original structure is from 1870 is used as a grist mill on Mill Creek and like most old structures, the mill carries a legend or two. Now, amongst the locals, there have been many stories of the Mill Creek ghost. Uh, the stories vary by culture. There's at least four cultures. You know, you talked about the Welsh, the Cornish. Um, there's also the Irish, the German, the Norwegian and the English that settled the area. Now my favorite legend is probably of the Irish. Now, the Irish settled the area and the yarn about this ghost that came over from the old country via either a suitcase, trunk, or even inside a whiskey bottle. You know, it is Ireland after all, right? Right. So some of that good Irish whiskey was replaced by a ghost. I just love the imagery that, that presents. <laughs> he,
0: he sneaks out. He, right, he tied one on.
1: Yeah. So uh, others say the ghost was of an Irishman who murdered his English landlord and then fled to the New World to escape his prosecution. And then he ended up in this hollow, not far from the creek. Now, this may have given rise to a tangential legend of the Mill Creek Hermit. So this centers around that that mill house. So the ghost is said to inhabit the mill house, but also lurk beneath the water kind of in a troll-like fashion. Okay. So he kind of guards the mill house below the Mill Creek. Now, one witness reported a faceless apparition that glowed with a greenish haze. So there you have the green light again. So were these actual stories of a haunted ghost or were they like cautionary tales to say, stay away from the mill house because if you get caught up in that wheel, it's going to turn you to bits.
0: Right, and then the mill ghost will take you down.
1: Yeah, the, the mill ghost will pull you under the water, into the wheel, which could just be a natural cavitation <laughs> from the...
0: <laughs> right. So I It, it, it about-
1: might just be a cautionary tale, but I thought it was kind of interesting that there was... Also, another legend of the Milk Creek Hermit above there that came over via whiskey bottle, suitcase trunk, something like that.
0: Right, and this is all within the same area, too.
1: Yes, this is just northwest, and it's a great place to stop, take a picture. Um, there's many pictures online if you just look up Hydes Mill.
0: Right. Beautiful. It's the kind of place you want to get wedding pictures or something like that. If you want the pastoral.
1: Yeah. The backdrop with the mill with the the water flowing.
0: The classic Wisconsin kind of, the kind of thing that, you know, Van Gogh at the same time was painting pictures over in France. (laughs) That was, is, uh, you know, these are the kind of pictures you can take in this beautiful place in Iowa County. And, but these are all similar type of stories. The idea they're bringing over these stories from the old country and they're kind of infecting people's imagination. And then they're spreading, they're creating new stories here. And at the same time over in the UK, they've got their own person who's jumping on people on the highway and that's spring heel Jack.
1: And this would be the same period, which would be the mid 1800s.
0: Yeah. So um, this is from a, uh, a site called the, the reprobate press. In October 1837, teenage serving girl Mary Stevens was walking home through Clapham Common when a strange figure jumped out at her. Gripping her tightly, he began to kiss her and tear at her clothes. The girl screamed and her attacker quickly fled. An unpleasant, but not especially unusual, sexual assault, you might think. But Stevens would make a description to the police that gave birth to a legend that would last for nearly 80 years and seep its way into the pop culture of the age. Her description of the attacker's, quote, Claws, cold and clammy as those of a corpse, unquote. may have just been a vivid way of describing her attacker's bony fingers, but quickly became a literal interpretation of a less or more than human monster. Thus began the legend of Springheel Jack, a sinister, mischievous, and sometimes malicious character who entered 19th century English folklore. Not, as some believed, another name for Jack the Ripper, Springheel Jack was apparently a demonic prankster putting the fear of God, or more accurately, the fear of the devil into all those who saw him, a fire-breathing, shape-shifting monster who could be anything the people wanted him to be. The day after his attack on Stevens, the monster made another appearance, inaugurating a method of attack that would reappear in later reports. He leapt out at a passing carriage, causing the coachman to crash and injure himself. Witnesses excitedly claim that he escaped by jumping over a nine-foot wall, cackling with a high-pitched ringing laughter. Why this was assumed to be the same character as the one who attacked Stevens, whose assault seemed suspiciously human, clammy fingers aside, is anyone's guess, but before long, the legend of Spring Jack, as the press dubbed him, was spreading. So let's say they're writing letters home, these Cornish and Welsh and you know, Irish miners. And what do we have in the news starting in 1837? Springheel Jack. And he appears all over for the next you know, 50 years, you know, to the point where they're talking about him in the 1880s and Jack the Ripper. But spring Jack was not the first, like, ghost of it. There's like several, it's like a Hammersmith ghost. There's several ghosts that appear starting in the early 1800s, all the way up to spring Jack Jack ends up being the most popular or the most one we talk about today. But there's several different phantoms and ghosts and spirits, kind of these crazes happening all in the early 1800s, all at the time period of those 10,000 a year miners coming for the lead rush, coming to Southwestern Wisconsin, coming to the Driftless area, all while they were growing up. They'd already created this, you know, this idea of a ghost along the highway, a devilish character. I mean, spring Jack is often described as what looks like a Hispanic devil, kind of, when they talk about features and stuff like that, it's, you know, that, that's kind of how they described it. It's You know, we're talking about the people of the time in the early 1800s and perhaps some xenophobia involved. Remember also the English in Spain had fought a war a couple centuries earlier, but where they described Springheel Jack had, you know, Hispanic features, the classics, it's the yeah. devil horns, it's, you know, it's, it's like Pan, it's a devil. And so, this was already in these people's minds, and if it wasn't, it's they had to be talking about it in these long letters and you know, when they're writing to each other. And so you can, you know, make a connection between these things happening over there. And then the phantom happening in Ridgeway with tens of thousands of people from those countries communicating back and forth uh, with their people back home. And so, you know, when, when you're thinking about what kind of creature is the Ridgeway phantom, if it was an actual you know, paranormal event, it sounds like it's some kind of non-human intelligence that's messing with people. It's a fairy, it's a, it's a puka, it's, you know, something like that. Unlike when we talk about the American Indian legend tricksters, like Wisakachek gets involved in some dumb business and things like that and foolish stuff and when he's hungry and, you know, pulls tricks on people because he wants to steal their food and everything. But Wisakachek is always on the side of humanity. He's not killing people. Well, things take a darker turn with the Ridgeway Phantom. Once we get past the mischief, it also appears that the Ridgeway Phantom might be a harbinger of death or a spirit of vengeance. This is from J. Rath's W-Files website, which is a, you can still access it after all these years, thank God. It's 30, Web
1: 1.0. But right,
0: 30 years later, we can still yeah. get the W-Files. Researchers have traced the origin of the Ridgeway Phantom to the murder of two teenaged brothers, aged 14 and 15, and MacKillop's Saloon in 1840. A group of rowdies tossed one lad into the fireplace, where he burnt to death in agonizing torment. The other boy froze to death, trying to escape from the town. From those deaths by fire and ice arose the Ridgway Phantom. During the same period, strange specters also haunted the Messerschmitt Hotel, MacKillop's Saloon, where the murder took place, Samson's Saloon, the Catholic Church, the cemetery, and dozens of private homes. Some say the Ridgway Phantom departed when the town burnt to the ground in 1910, but others believe he's still out there, waiting in the woods near Mineral Point. And so, also remember, things haunting the Catholic Church and Cemetery, if we're talking about people who are not necessarily very popular with the Welsh and the Cornish and the English settlers, it's the Papists. Because the Irish were Catholics, mm-hmm. and the French were Catholics, and so... A lot of the people that the English traditionally pushed around, the Irish or fought, were thought to have this allegiance to the Pope instead of their king, and so they were looked down upon and discriminated against. So we talk about an area that's really English and Welsh and Cornish and stuff. The Catholic Church is a, is a punching bag for those kind of things. So, oh yeah, that's haunted. Why?
1: Just by that point, they had adopted the Anglican Church.
0: Yes, and so they looked down on the on the Papists. So, all right. So let's say he is the spirit. Let's say the, the Ridgway Phantom is the spirit of vengeance, is something born out of or evoked, called forth from something like the murder of two brothers in 1840.
1: From the wrath.
0: Could the Ridgway Ghost be a murderer? This is Charles E. Brown's got his own pamphlet on the Ridgway Ghost. In 1933, Louis Moyer, the sexton of the Catholic cemetery at Ridgway, did not return home at night. The next day, his body was found hanging in a tool shed. However, for a year, he'd been in poor health. Afterward, there was some whispered talk that Moyer had probably had some disagreement with the Ridgeway ghost, and the ghost had hanged him. Okay, that's still back into the, like, oh, how did the, you know, how did the old sexton in the cemetery die? Must have been the ghost.
1: He was a papist working in the Catholic cemetery. <laughs> right, he's, so,
0: he's probably worshiping the devil out there. Now, that, is the more of like okay so the ridgeway phantom now he might have broke the neck of that wrestler and he like the, the, you know the catholic cemetery he killed the sexton but there's three more deaths associated with the ridgeway phantom and this one made the new york times in 1902 this is their article some wisconsin ghosts The other well-authenticated Wisconsin ghost has chosen his haunt in a less urban region and among less cultivated people than the theologians of Nishota. I would say the theologians of Nishota are often very cultivated. Indeed, the scene of his walkings is most artistically chosen in the midst of a wild and savage landscape that would have delighted Doré, the artist. Indeed, it is another Brittany, both in topography and ethnology, for that weird, strange land of Wisconsin's lead region, with its cairns and pinnacles and citadels of rock, its gloomy, tortuous, cavernous vales, is inhabited by Celtic folk, Welsh, and their kindred of corn whales, and a sprinkling of Galwegian Irish. Notable ghost seers, all. The ghost himself is apparently a remnant of the days when the population of the region was Anglo-Saxon, Virginians and Kentuckians. He is supposed to be the wraith of a man killed in the lead mining days before the Civil War. At any rate, he appears in Ridgeway Township at the spot where the house of this murdered man long stood, a rotting heap of blackened boards. The first person to see the ghost, see it a generation after the murder was committed, was one Dr. Cutler of Dodgeville, the county seat of Iowa County, next town beyond Ridgeway. One night as the doctor was driving homeward after a visit to a patient in the country, he was suddenly affrighted at seeing a dark figure seated on the pole between the horses. The reins slipped from his nervousless hands and the horses dashed away at full speed, the specter riding the pole nothing, discommoded by the shaking he was getting. Up a hill, down another, and lo, the specter vanished. The doctor's story found little credence. He was known to love the flowing bowl and his friends said he had taken a drop too much. It was a dream, a specter of delirium tremens. So they're saying he's either into the laudanum, he's, you know, the flowing bowl, or he's drinking too much. But the doctor declared he was sober. He recalled the fact that a year previous, when he really was a little full, drunk, or wasted, or whatever, whatever. He had access to pharmaceuticals. Right. While passing the self same haunted spot, he had become aware of a dark and silent stranger sitting beside him in the carriage. For a mile, the stranger rode without saying a word, and all at once he was gone. At the time, the doctor had asked no question of his drunken wits and had considered it a strange experience and nothing more. He was now convinced that the man beside him and the thing on the end of the pole were one and the same, and that a being not of this world. Whereat the people laughed in the daytime. But not long afterward, the reputation of the doctor received a sudden and terrible vindication, as he himself afterward to vindicate. John Lewis, father of Evan Lewis, champion wrestler of the United States, known to sports everywhere, was a prosperous farmer living in the vicinity of Ridgeway, a man of sober life, undaunted courage, and possessed of the tremendous physical strength his son had inherited. He was returning home one fall evening after spending the day assisting a friend in butchering. The night was not dark, and when he drew near the haunted spot, he determined to cut across lots to reach his home. He was approaching the stone wall at the roadside to climb it when his attention was arrested by the sight of a figure that seemed to have gathered itself together out of just now tenantless air and stood confronting him in a menacing attitude. He knew of no enemy, and highwaymen were unknown in that retired quarter of the state. He decided that someone must be trying to frighten him, and so he hailed the figure, and no response being given, he advanced upon it. The figure did not budge, but stood a towering shape of blackness, a gigantic and grisly thing. Some unaccountable awe and the uncanny hugeness of the thing made Lewis decide to avoid a conflict, and drawing his butcher's knife from his pocket, he started to pass by when the figure, raising its arm with a forbidding gesture, stepped athwart his path. Obeying a hasty impulse that was more a ghastly and soul-chilling fear than it was anger, Lewis let drive his keen knife, Next morning, a neighbor found Lewis lying inside the wall in a semi-conscious condition. Of what happened after he had struck with his knife, he had but vague impressions. He said he had been hurled in the air as if in the vortex of a cyclone, pounded, crushed in insensibility. He died a few hours after he was carried home, asserting that with his dying breath that he had come to his end by a supernatural agency. Thus did the death of John Lewis make the first vindication of the reputation of Dr. Cutler, and the scoffing ceased. But a second and a third time was the doctor to be vindicated. A dressmaker encountered the ghost and, pursued by it, soon after died of shock occasioned by the intense fright. At last, Dr. Cutler himself, seeing the ghost for a third time, finally and triumphantly vindicated his word, though at the cost of his own life. For, dying as a result of fright, he became the third of the victims of the implacable specter of the old military road. So that's our wrestler, but I like that in this story, they go in like, so he describes what happened to him instead of just, they found the body with a broken neck. So like in the New York times, they have his testimony of what happened. And we'll talk more about that wrestler in a second uh, and the story of John Lewis, but I think it's interesting here because now this isn't just like a trickster ghost. This is a sin- sinister character that kills you by scaring. Homicidal maniac, yeah. Right. Now he's a murderer. Uh, it, it, by 1902, he comes from like this, this puckish imp who's fun and telling jokes and like a character that people talk about in the tavern to if you run into him, you're going to die of fright. So he becomes a, a character of horror over time. This is Madison Capital Times, August 2nd, 1968. Ridgeway Still Remembers Ghost. The legend of the Ridgeway Ghost has been passed down from generation to generation, although not so much now. It has been told and retold and even written and rewritten until it resembles history. Most communities had their haunts, called from unexplainable experiences, real and imaginary, in fashion and fashion into folklore, but none was so well-known and persistent as the Ridgeway Ghost. The ghost was believed to inhabit the Captain Jones house before the turn of the century and it appeared in such guises as a headless horseman, a flock of pigs, or a stranger on the tailgate of a buckboard. Robert E. Brinker, 80 years old, this 1968, a native of Ridgeway, said, we believed in ghosts then. Everybody believed in ghosts, said Brinker. He remembered hearing the story of Evan Lewis, the guy who, story we just heard, uh, from his son. The same Son, who supposedly pried the knife from his father's hand that night. So he heard the story about Evan Lewis dying from his son, and his son is the one that found him. So fast forward to 1986. Back in Ridgeway, things go bump in the night. This is the Capitol Times. Once again, it's a Halloween article, mm-hmm. on the 30th of October. Uh, Jeannie Lewis. A reporter for the Dodgeville Chronicle had her encounter with the Ridgeway ghost, recreated by the TV program PM Magazine. The segment was broadcast nationally. Lewis's family farm three miles south of Ridgeway on County BB seems to be a prime haunt of the ghost. Family members have been visited frequently by the apparition over the years, and Lewis said they all believe in it. After all, seeing is believing, and here's her account. I was rocking my daughter about 2 a.m. when I heard the kitchen door open followed by footsteps. We had newspapers spread out on the kitchen floor because we were tracking in mud from the yard. I woke up my husband, and when we heard the footsteps leaving, we saw the newspapers floating him off the floor. And she said they didn't see anyone. Lewis described an encounter her son had My son was in track at school, and he was running near the farm when he felt something behind him. He kept running faster and faster. But when he rested on a bridge, the ghost sat down beside him and said, That was some mighty fine running you did. And then my son said, You'll see some more as soon as I catch my breath. Who does that sound like?
1: It's the same retelling.
0: That's the same retelling of Robert Gard's story that he told in the 1960s, The Welshman. Oh. Lewis said her husband's great-grandfather died after seeing the ghost. So this is Evan Lewis's...
1: Descendant, Jeannie. Yes, ghost. or okay. a,
0: she married into the family. She married, okay. married into the Ridgeway ghost family. Good job, Jeannie. Lewis said her husband's great-grandfather died after seeing the ghost. He was at the neighbor's and going home, he saw a carriage with two white horses in front of him disappear. He died two weeks later. Doctors said his heart had enlarged twice its size. Despite all the unnatural occurrences that have taken place on the farm, Lewis said the family has never thought of leaving. All of our kids in the neighborhood has experienced the ghost. It's the one way of explaining things that you can't really explain. So the family story has changed from...
1: Wrestled and chanked the ghost.
0: Right, it's, it's gone from like the ghost broke his neck yeah. to he was carried like a cyclone and stuff like mm-hmm. that and dropped. Two, he died of fright two weeks later and his heart was twice the size. And so, I mean, Jeannie Lewis is interesting here because it, it's funny that she retells that the, the story of the Welshman happens to her son. That's, that's a coincidence. And then her husband tells her, you know, a different family story than the one we read in the New York Times and also the one that Charles E. Brown told earlier. So I do think it's pretty cool, though, that the Lewis family is still around and still telling ghost stories. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I wonder if Chad's any relation.
0: Right, oh yeah, we should see if Wisconsin paranormal hero, Chad Lewis, knows any of the Lewis family. But I, I just thought that was interesting. That was, you know, we like we have that story from the New York Times, 1902, and then forward to, he's mentioned in Charles E. Brown's book, even though not by name, and then forward to Genie Lewis, 84 years later, still talking about it, and even had a segment filmed for PM Magazine, which was, you know, just one of those syndicated shows that were on like six. You'd have like the local news on, and then you'd have like a syndicated show after, and then like Wheel of Fortune. It was just one of those shows that they would have like human interest stories sure, and things. And eventually it would become tabloid news, like a current affair and inside edition before you get to the 24 hour news networks like we have now. But there were a whole bunch of kind of news magazine shows that were aimed at women you know, watching uh, TV and during the day and it would just be like, oh, human interest, ghost stories, happy Oprah-ish thing kind of things and so I'd like to, I'd like to see that PM magazine. Uh will have to
1: dig that one out see if can find it. Find it. Yeah.
0: Okay. So we got one modern sighting. Otherwise, everything else seems to be happening 170 years ago. Well, this is um, about.com and uh, they had a paranormal story archive and this is from 1999. Mark G., right, Sam. I want to relate an experience I had around Halloween 1993. I'm from Ripon, Wisconsin. Home of the cookies.
1: Delicious. Rippin' good.
0: <laughs> yeah, Rippin' good cookies. I still like them. At the time of this story, I was also a student at the University of Wisconsin, Platteville. To get to my school, I would travel from Ripon to Madison. I would get on Highway 151 and then go there to Platteville, which is in Grand County. On the way there, I'd pass an old, abandoned farmhouse on 151. Now, Uh, my note, highway 151 is just a, you know, a couple miles away from the captain Jones house that they talked about earlier, but the captain Jones house isn't in Richway. It's in Dodgeville and that's 201 East Swain street. It is on the state and national register of historic places. And from the book, uh, memoirs of Iowa County, Wisconsin, from the earliest historical times down to the present written in 1913. This is about David Jones. Mr. Jones came to Ridgeway in 1858 and was employed on the farm of Mr. Morris, whose daughter he afterward married. In 1861, Mr. Jones enlisted as a private in Company C, 12th Wisconsin Infantry, and served with distinction until the end of the war. Although he saw much active service and was promoted to the rank of Captain, Captain Jones, he was most fortunate in his personal experiences. He was never wounded or taken prisoner and never was sufficiently indisposed to miss a roll call. He was honorably discharged from the service at the close of the war and mustered out July 16th, 1865. And then he lived for a long time and then people were you know, living in his house. I mean, like his it was, kid the, it was the, the Jones
1: house. house, yeah.
0: So in that story, they say that the Ridgway Ghost inhabited Captain Jones' house up until the turn of the century. Well, so did regular people. So I think that reporter might've, I, I think they, the way this guy describes it, Mark G., he's like, it was an old abandoned farmhouse on 151 that people said the Ridgeway Phantom lived. So this is probably just an old house and then probably a couple miles away from the Captain Jones house. So that's how people might've described it. It's, oh, it's a farm beyond the Captain Jones house. That's the way they may have described it to the reporter. So just in case, if you want to go see, find the Ridgeway Phantom in the Captain Jones house, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the place that they originally talking about even the reporter said it was. Um, I think it's an abandoned farmhouse that was close to there. So this is Mark continuing. It was a very old building, completely isolated with no driveway. When going by, I'd looked through the windows. The interior of the dwelling was completely gutted as if there had been a fire inside at one point. It looked as if a strong wind could knock the whole building over. Anyway, it was Halloween weekend. I was going back to Ripon with my roommate. By the time we left, it was around 9 p.m., When we drove by the old house, I noticed that the building's interior was brightly lit, as if someone had been inside and turned on all the lights. That's what confused me. I saw what it looked like inside. There was no wiring of any sort in the building. I couldn't understand where the light was coming from. It wasn't lantern light. It looked like electricity, but it didn't seem possible. When we came back a couple of days later, we noticed that the house looked like it had before. Gutted. Strange. Several years later, I bought a book called Haunted Wisconsin. I read a chapter about the legendary Ridgeway ghost in the chapter. There was a photo of the house where the ghost supposedly lived. It was the same house. I got it out a map and double checked it with the book to make sure they were the same and they matched. Apparently when we drove by the Ridgeway ghost was home. I get, I don't have that haunted Wisconsin book.
1: I have it at home. I just was looking at it yesterday. So off to uh...
0: double check. Cause when I, you know, I went up to Haunted heartland and stuff like that. The things that mentioned the Ridgeway ghost that I had didn't have a house associated with it. So have to see, but this is about 20, you know, 28 years ago or whatever it happened. And so um, I just thought it was interesting that it's, a, it's the whole connection to, I mean, it's the same kind of deal. 151 lonely at night, weird things happen. And he thinks that this, you know, people talk about, I mean, this could be just where people say haunted stuff happens, you know, an abandoned farmhouse is like, a, it's a, perfect setting for teenagers to say that either way, whether the Ridgeway Phantom's there or not, it's cool that he saw lights in an abandoned farmhouse where <laughs> there's obviously no wiring or anything like that. And this is all in the same area. So the Ridgeway Phantom appeared at these different places along the trail, along the road, in all these, you know, from Dodgeville to Mineral Point. And now, in 1981, we also have the sighting of something weird in Mineral Point. Wisconsin State Journal, April 2nd, 1981. Vampires stalk Mineral Point. Count Dracula has arrived in the small former lead mining community. For the past several nights, police here have been plagued with reports of vampires jumping out of the shadows around the downtown area, scaring people. It all started on Monday night when police officer John Pepper encountered a strange-looking person in the cemetery, said police lieutenant Bill Trott. According to the Pepper's report, he was routinely shining his light through the Graceland Cemetery when it flashed on a, quote, huge person with a white painted face, unquote, and wearing a dark cape. Pepper ran after the dark stranger and lost him, or it, among the gravestones. He later described his fleeing vampire as being six foot three and ugly. Last night, Tuesday, we had a half dozen vampires on the loose in town, Trot said. We received several phone calls and were stopped by people on the street reporting encounters with white-faced, creepy-looking people jumping out of the shadows at them. While Trott and several Iowa County Sheriff's officers chased vampires around town, they were unable to catch any. Trott blamed the rash of vampires Tuesday night on pranksters who heard of Pepper's Monday night encounter. We'll probably have vampires around here for the next two weeks now. They think they can get away with it and scare a few people, Trott said. The lieutenant said his department had had problems in the past with vandalism at the cemetery, but there was no damage on Monday night. I don't know if there was any out there last night. I can't get anyone to go back to the cemetery at night, Trot said. I even offered to pay John Pepper overtime to stake the place out for a vampire, but he wouldn't bite, the lawman added with a chuckle. Trot swears his report is not an April Fool's joke. I was reading a version of the story that made The Wire... And so it got all over the country. It was in the Boston Herald also on April, you know, like April 2nd, April 3rd. And, and they kind of laugh at it in that story, saying like, it's probably just those-
1: April Fool's joke.
0: It's probably, just those, probably just those Wisconsin, you know, doing April Fool's. Now, uh, the thing about John Pepper is, or we should just call him the Pepper. The Pepper. <laughs> like that uh, Wisconsin State Journal did in 1981. Well, the thing that I think a lot of mineral point vampire- slash Ridgeway Phantom. And I, I think they're the same entity if it was a paranormal entity. It's shapeshifter jumping out at people. I mean, that's spring Jack. That's the phantom scaring people and scaring horses. There's um, also
1: the part of the story where it bounds like a six foot tall fence with little, kind of like the spring Heel Jack
0: that, entity. exactly, yeah. jumping around. When people talk about that, well, they neglect to say that John Pepper was known as kind of a jokester around town. And this is from Chad Lewis's Wisconsin Road Guide to Haunted Locations when he went to Mineral Point to see what the deal was with the vampire. And he went to Graceland Cemetery. We were unable to contact Mr. Pepper, he says. However, we did speak with several residents of Mineral Point who informed us that they thought of Mr. Pepper as a practical joker. They told the story that John and a friend would often dress up as an ape and run around town. We also cannot rule out the theory that Mr. Pepper was an unknowing participant in a hoax for April Fool's Day. Okay. So then there's that idea that they were tricking the trickster. So somebody else was screwing around the cemetery. They got him out there. And like he was, he he's was... the one that pulls the pranks. He's the guy that dresses like the ape.
1: Yeah. So he was the mark. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. And so what I mean, but what a better way to kind of make your hoax or make your story even more believable. If you've got the guy who's like, if you trick the guy that usually tricks everybody else. Yeah. Cause then he's like, it wasn't me now it must be real. And so the mineral point vampire in 1981 enters the lexicon of, or the, the pantheon of strange Wisconsin occurrences. Well, That's the only one I was able to find in a newspaper. But you'll see references to these next couple of sightings. And I found the original, the primary source. Well, the primary source of where I think they're getting these reports from. And this is from a site called Heckler Spray, which was an internet gossip site based in Iceland. It doesn't exist anymore. Awesome or off-putting, the Mineral Point Vampire, April 18th, 2011, by a writer named Sean Lizdeth. The sightings for this particular creature were also marked upon on a Facebook page called Wisconsin Death Trip Discussions. A poster named Derek adds quite a bit to the story. He doesn't cite a source, so take it with a grain of salt, which I respect Sean Lindsay, the author, saying like, hey, he's just, this guy wrote this on a Facebook group, but like, here's a portion of what he said. On March 14th, 2008, around 9 p.m., Mineral Point police responded to a number of calls of a person sitting in a tree outside an apartment complex and leaping upon those who passed by. The person described matched that of the Mineral Point vampire. As police arrived, the suspect jumped from the tree and ran off into the night. Authorities followed what they believed to be his tracks in the snow, which led to a 10-foot high cement wall and stopped. The suspect could not be found. Again with the jumping. And now he can jump over a 10-foot high cement wall. So he continues. Now, Derek, on Wisconsin Death Trip Discussions, continues writing, taken off the Newswire reporting out of Madison, July 11th, 2008. And I checked the newswires for anything out of Madison that talked about a vampire, a supernatural on July 11th or July 12th, you know, in that region. In that region, yeah. Couldn't find anything in the newswire. So obviously Derek from Wisconsin Death Trip Discussions subscribes to his own wire service coming out of Madison. On July 11th, 2008, at about 10 p.m., Mineral Point residents Brandon Heinz, 22 years old, and his girlfriend Jamie Marker, 19 years old, were fishing off the jetty on the far west shore of Ludden Lake— when the couple heard noises coming from under the jetty. The noises were described as sounding, quote, like something was using the boards of the jetty like a ladder, climbing along underneath us, unquote. Hines began stopping the boards, believing it was some kind of animal and hoping to scare it away. He aimed his flashlight between the cracks of the boards when he and Marker heard water splashing down towards the other side of the jetty. Hines shone his flashlight toward the sound to see, quote, a figure with dark hair and a very pale face pulling itself up out of the jetty, unquote. Heinz and Marker stood in shock as the figure began to rise to its feet. Marker turned and ran up the path toward Heinz's vehicle as Heinz kept his flashlight aimed on the figure. It was wearing some kind of Dracula-looking cape and a suit, sort of, Hines stated. Marker claimed the same. Heinz threw his flashlight towards the figure and ran up the path after Marker, who was already in the vehicle with the doors locked. As Heinz started the vehicle and began leaving, Marker saw at the passenger window that the figure was coming up the path at a run and she screamed for him to hurry. The couple drove to Mineral Point Police Department and made a statement directly after. A patrol unit in the area of Ludden Lake investigated the area where Heinz and Marker had been but found no one. Heinz and Marker returned the next day to retrieve their belongings with everything accounted for except for Heinz's flashlight. Whoever it is, Heinz says, they can keep it. <laughs>
1: So it's written like a, a news release. Yeah,
0: it, no, it's written well. And so, you know, I, I would love to see the original story that was written on instead of someone copying what somebody else wrote onto a Facebook group that mm-hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Wisconsin Death Trip Discussion. I mean, I would be part of that Facebook group. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd be like, Wisconsin Death Trip Discussions. Like, where do I sign? Help me in. But either way, it's a well-written story about other people seeing the Mineral Point vampire.
1: But it's, it's written almost like fan fiction.
0: Right. It's, well, it's written like creepypasta. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that people write these stories to put onto Reddit and things and they're meant to scare each other. And a lot of them are based on urban legends. It's where Slender Man came out mm-hmm. of. I mean, copy pasta is a variation of copy and paste that was used for internet talk. And then creepy was the horror story version of that. Yep. And so you have reddits, which is an internet discussion forum. You have subreddits called creepy pasta, where people will be on those pages and they'll be sharing stories with each other about that. And so that's kind of what it reminds me of is that people like. Wrote yeah, these. I was
1: thinking that while you're reading it. it sounded yeah. Like a creepy pasta.
0: You know, one interesting tidbit about Graceland Cemetery in Mineral Point and Ludden Lake, uh, where they say this is, is Betty White's husband, Alan Ludden. Alan Ludden, born in Mineral Point, buried there, and he's buried in Graceland Cemetery. So I'm not saying he's not the Mineral Point vampire. Obviously, It'd be sweet if he was, yeah. but just the place where they're talking about is where Betty White's husband was buried, and you know the townies from Mineral Point, and then also the lake, Ludden Lake, after that family. So that's just a little bit of Mineral Point trivia there. So we have these modern sightings of, I mean, 1981, and then something maybe in 2000 or two sightings maybe in 2008, But it's the same kind of it's the same spring heeled jack kind of jumping, scaring people kind of thing, shape shifting. Now it's a now it's a Dracula looking creature instead of the, the, the black. The Spanish horse. with the horns, yeah. Ghost. You know, however, though, when we go into also in, in the modern age, Linda Godfrey has a werewolf story from there in her book, Hunting the American Werewolf. She says, in April, 2004, a woman named Kim, last name with Helen Request, wrote me after finding my website and said she also knew of a werewolf sighting in Mineral Point. It happened in 1987, she said, about six years after the Pepper vampire incident. But unlike that purported sighting, where only a known practical joker claimed to have seen the creature, Kim wrote that between 15 and 20 people saw this reputed werewolf. She didn't hint at the gathering's purpose. I mean... Kids, I mean teenagers in nineteen eighty-seven or whatever. Like, I just, I just imagine I'm doing some kind of like they're all playing the Ouija board or something like that, um, at a or house, a house party. party. Yeah. The way the story goes, she wrote, is that it was on a spring day during the middle of the afternoon, sunny and everything, which is a time you don't expect a werewolf. But it was the day before the full moon, I believe. She's also an astronomy major. A bunch of people, maybe 15 or 20, saw a werewolf running as it was changing, and then it went into a building and fell and clutched a railing and then changed back into a human in front of everybody. There were a bunch of people that talked about it in the 80s. Now, Linda continues. Unfortunately, there was no word as to whom uh, the werewolf turned out to be. Presumably, everyone in such a small town would have known and been able to identify such a, a bold person that would shapeshift in front of them. As for the small crowd of people, Kim did name names. One person who talked about it the most, she said, sounded really scared, like he believed it, and a lot of people teased him, so I don't think he was making up something for no gain. I think he did believe the story. Linda was able to track down this man and talk to him, but unfortunately he claimed to have no memory of the incident. Another person, Kim named, turned out to be deceased, so the investigation ended there, with only her second-hand report to go on. Still, the story has a certain charm. This was a very melodramatic werewolf. But that goes into... The shape-shifting, the weird creatures, and that goes back into the puka.
1: Yeah, and skinwalker lore.
0: Right. So, you know, Ridgeway, the Ridgeway Phantom, the Mineral Point Vampire, the ghost of the military Ridge Road, it's a number of things it could have been. But there, I mean, there's obviously dozens of sightings and, you know, lots of articles uh, written about this creature starting at least... Since the, the mid 19th century. So, what do you think, Jeff? What do you think the Ridgeway Phantom is?
1: I think it is lore that followed those Cornish and Welsh to Wisconsin and probably just a manifestation, either real or imagined, of those stories.
0: Yeah, I think they brought over the Bacca or the puka and mixed with whatever kind of. you know, fairy creatures, alien intelligences, not necessarily extraterrestrial aliens, but non-human intelligences were already floating about. And who knows what all that digging in the mines that the Badgers did, who knows what that brought up. So, well, that's it for the Ridgeway Phantom and the Mineral Point Vampire. I want to thank you guys very much for joining us on Wisconsin legends. Until next time, I'm Mike Huberty of American Ghost Walks. You can find us at americanghostwalks.com.
1: And Jeff finnup of Badgerland Legends. You can find me at badgerlandlegends.com and at Badgerland Legends on your social medias.
0: We'll see you soon. Hey guys, real quick, this is Mike from Wisconsin Legends Podcast coming at you, letting you know that Jeff and I will be working on Season 2 of Wisconsin Legends coming up right after this Halloween 2022. So please, if you go to wisconsinlegendspodcast.com, you can go to the bottom of the screen and hit subscribe, and we'll tell you when the new episodes are out, or you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, you will find Wisconsin Legends.